This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and I thank you all for joining me today, whether it's on a Friday morning when this was published, or Saturday, or Sunday. You might be spending quality time with your family listening to this right now. That would be really cool. Wouldn't that be amazing? But uh, we digress. That would be amazing, right? But anyways, I digress. Let me introduce everyone who's joining us today. Joining us again, our... I, I, th- I might call them producers of the show at this point. They've been on so much. But uh, we got Stephen Keel from Arquitos Capital, Kevin Shea, uh, private investor, at The Good Prick on, uh, on Twitter. And Stephen, I would say yours, but I, it's too good. The Good Prick. I, I can't not. You know, it's because he's a Red Sox fan. That's why. Anyways, with <laughs> I'd also like to introduce new to the panel joining us this week is Scott Felsenthal. He is a private business owner, owner as well as investor and board director of a microcap company. Scott, welcome to uh, welcome to the panel and the investors roundtable. Great, great to be here. Because this is your first time on here, I'm putting you on the spot. You know, give us a little bit about your your background, and also, you know, let let's. I'd love to hear about as a private business owner how it's been going through this pandemic. Yeah, sure. So uh, my company is a fourth generation family owned business. Um, We manufacture, design, manufacture, import um, home organization and storage products to retailers uh, around the world. And it's been a, since we are in the retail environment, uh, retail world, it's been a very interesting year to say the least. I think um, like many other private businesses, when when Corona uh, first hit, everything kind of locked up. but we've, our business is in a fortunate position that when people have to stay home, they're always looking to buy home storage and organization products and take care of their house. So we've been able to kind of navigate and really have turned out to have a, a pretty good year uh, on the back of a lot of, obviously, a lot of adversity. So it's been, it's been interesting. We've learned a lot about our company and our people and um, people that really step up during trying times. And uh, we've gone through a lot of that this year, but it's been it's been interesting. But as you mentioned, also um, microcap investor and uh, got involved in a microcap uh, board this uh, past, I guess, almost two years ago now, um, which has been a great experience. And look forward to talking that through a little bit with you guys as well. And what's unique about our panel today is that everybody on here happens to be a board director of a publicly traded microcap company. So I thought that'd be a cool topic. Well, actually, Kevin thought it would be a cool topic. I can't take credit for that. That was, Ke- that was all Kevin. So, I mean, you know, I'd say let's kick this off with, you know, the conversation about, because um, we've talked about this a little bit in terms of with being in Corona and, and being uh, going through a pandemic, you know, from the experience actually as a board director. Stephen, you've talked about that a few times. Same with, with you, Kevin. So I, I want to throw first to both Kevin and Scott. You know, um, you know, unlike Stephen, neither of you run a, an investment firm or, or have a fund or asset managers. You know, you guys are private investors that happen to join, you know, a public company board. I mean, what was that process like? And then what 
led to your decision to then joining those boards? And, and how, how did that all work? I mean, Kevin, Scott, whoever wants to go first. Kevin, well, go ahead. I'll go. Um, as, we, as we go through our investing due diligence, one of the things that we all seek to do is to engage the CEOs in one-on-ones and in various conversations uh, either directly or indirectly by phone. Um, and we try to see if we can get to know the individual a bit, try to see if we can understand how that person is, uh, wants to implement a strategic plan for the business. Um, we try to get to know the business and things of that type. And it was through that mechanism, that was one-on-one mechanism and in, 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 in pursuing this company that uh, I did indeed receive a request from the CEO to join them um, as a board member. And it would be my first opportunity to do so. And I thought it would be a a very interesting and challenging opportunity, um, both from the standpoint of doing something that I had not done before, um, which I always look at as a a life experience. I just love doing stuff that I've never done before. Um, But at the same time, being able to contribute. I mean, the, the, the thing that I was able to to uh, conclude myself was that I could actually add a considerable amount of value to the business and to the strategic planning and and related to the business because of the nature of the business itself. I mean, I was directly related in in conducting some of the same types of operations that uh, I would have been advising on. So uh, as a management consultant in past experiences. So for me, it was almost a no brainer because it was very relative. Um, It was interesting to me um, I wanted to invest in the company, and I thought I could actually participate and and um, and add and add and contribute. Um, I made it clear to the CEO that that's what I would be doing. I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be a, what they are calling a 90-day uh, board of directors member, and that I would actually be much more participatory and trying to um, add value where I can where I can. The, the, the interesting thing there is, is that one of the conversations that you get into in microcap uh, board of directors, in my opinion, is it's called noses in, fingers out. Um, you don't want to get too involved in the company, stick your nose in all the time. But, you, but I mean, you do want to stick your nose in on a regular basis, but you don't want to muck it all up with your own, with your own manipulations of the business. So we, have a, we had a need to basically... Um, determine the role that I will play and how I could uh, be a, a, a fairly strong participant yet at the same time avoid the issues of, of trying, avoid the issues of being a temporary executive of whatever you want to do. So there's a lot of conversations that I think would be wise to have around those topics. Um, you know, how'd you get in? Why? What do you do? Where do, where's the, where are you, where do you um, place your, place your emphasis? So, you know, how do you, how do you impact, impact change? Do you need to impact change? It's a whole variety of different things. I think those are the topics that might be appropriate for this conversation. Gotcha. And, and then Scott. Yeah, my, my path onto a board was a little, little different. I guess it started similar just as a uh, investor. I was introduced to the CEO of this company that uh, whose board I, I now serve on. Um, and after I was introduced to the CEO as a potential investment opportunity for myself, I obviously got to know the CEO and management a little bit, but then realized I had a cousin that was in a very similar business um, in the United States. This company, I live in the United States, this company whose board I'm on is in Canada. 
my cousin's company was in um, in the United States. Turns out there were very similar businesses. So what ended up happening, long story short, is the Canadian company acquired my cousin's business. And through that process, I got to really understand the industry, um, the company whose board I sit on now, um, and just the whole dynamics of, of what the, the business is all about. So um, that's how I kind of got, you know, landed on, on the board. Obviously, I was very close uh, with the company through that process and, and trying to make that, that deal, um, you know, happen. And as a result, uh, got to know everybody involved and, and ultimately uh, was asked to join the board. So uh, Kevin, I echo a lot of what you say about being actively involved on the board. It's something I, um, I you know, really had to understand about myself before I ch chose to, to move forward because I didn't want to not bring the right kind of value that, that uh, I, I knew I could bring. So I knew I could bring value. Um, I had to do my own due diligence further about the company just to make sure, because as you know, when you join a board, you're putting your own reputation on the line. So you want to make sure you're getting, getting into bed with the right people. Um, so I went through that process for a while and, and really talked to a lot of people about joining a, a public board. I'm on several private boards, probably like, like you guys as well. Um, but just the public thing is just such a, was such a new dynamic for me. And, and um, now that I've been on it for a while, seeing that side of it, as opposed to just what an investor would typically see is could be hours of conversation uh, right now. Um, but yeah, that's Bobby, that's kind of how I've led in, led into this. Well, don't worry. We're about to get into that a little okay. bit. Not, obviously not company specific details by any means, but I mean, bringing Steven into the conversation, I mean, what, what, what's been your experience, you know, uh, from first time you joined a public company board and, and really seeing that other side, you know, what, what, what's that experience been like for you? Absolutely. Well, I think, the obligations, especially related to the audit, the audit committee, and the the, uh, the GCN committee, it's a major responsibility for the independent directors primarily, and especially in the case of Kevin and Scott, where you're independent directors, I would assume in this situation, you have an obligation and responsibility that's a little bit different than the insiders because you have to walk a fine line between, you know, doing what, uh, supporting, you know, if in fact you do support the leadership and the management and uh, coming at it from a perspective where you're keeping them in check as well. And sometimes that is compensation through GCN. Sometimes that's questioning certain decisions that management made with regards to uh, certain financial uh, items that uh, there is a judgment call that could be made. Uh, and occasionally you do have to push back at the auditor for some of their suggestions and uh, you have to determine when that's appropriate to do so and when not. So you, you as an independent director have a unique and uh, I think a special opportunity to look out for all shareholders in a way that the insiders don't have. Because even if you have large insider ownership, if, if the insiders on the board, you know, their, their uh, livelihood with regards to salary and bonus attached to that, even if they have shares, depending on how much they own, more of their day-to-day -day life is dependent on kind of that job. Whereas an independent director, you, you can look at it and look at their, uh, their work, uh, not from an occupation job perspective, but really 
to look out for the shareholders, outside shareholders, and make sure you're aligned as much as possible. And it, it sounds like the two of you, you know, I don't know your specific situations with these companies, but uh, I assume you probably serve on one or more of those companies. And it's over time, it's something that you really have to be careful of that you don't get quote unquote captured by management because you might like them. You still have to be that person who can have the independent voice and who, who watches over them in a way and looks out for truly, you know, independent shareholders and, and sometimes has to have those tough questions and, and tough conversations with management that you do like. You raise a good point. You raise a good point there. I'll just add that um, one of the things I went through before I joined joined the board as I, I sat down with the CEO um, phone calls, maybe I can't remember, but um, I said, look, I want to be your friend forever. I think you're a great guy. I know that you built this company and it's great, but I'm going to challenge the hell out of you. And if, if that's not something you want, um, tell me now, because uh, I do think it's very important. Nothing drives me more crazy than seeing a, a board of directors um, that are all just you know, do whatever the CEO wants to do. And uh, that's just a bad recipe for the exact reasons you described, Stu. I think that you're absolutely on the money, Scott. I also use the same phraseology that it's a challenging, mo it's a challenging model or a challenger model that uh, one does want to uh, undertake as a board member. Um, the, other, the other word that uh, came across in the conversations came from Steve when he said align. Um, to me, I think that's very, very important because you do want to align with what's going on, yet at the same time, you want to be able to assure uh, through your own research, through your own observations and the like, that the company management maintain a direct focus on what it is that they're supposed to be doing. Okay, if they define a strategic plan, then the, then the focus is executing against that plan. Um, if they begin to deviate from that plan, it is your responsibility, in my opinion, to challenge them, to ask the question, why are you deviating? Why are you taking a, dis a, 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 a different look? And, and a lot of these, I think we've all seen them, is that what happens is that in many companies, a, a good opportunity comes in that's actually over here someplace. It's, it's 90 degrees off of focus, 90 degrees off of, off of core, core activity, but it's such a slick opportunity, you might have to take a look at it and say, well, gee, that might be great. Um, in many, many cases, even though it's a great opportunity, it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to, to a company because they defocus on their, on their implementation and get themselves into trouble. So I think that there are requirements that a board of directors have that basically is to come but steer um, the company away from these these misadventures, if you'd like to use that stuff, and keep them on focus and continually, continually draw them to that attention because small companies, as we probably are well aware, are much more susceptible to get, getting um, screwed by bad decisions of this type. So I think that's the outside, the outside directors. Uh, I think it actually is the outside directors who uh, stand, the, stand the, uh, the test of time and being able to challenge them, keep them on focus, and at the same time remain aligned uh, individually with them so that you can indeed execute uh, at the same time. Absolutely, I mean, you know, I, I think we've all heard Adam Epstein speak at, at a number of events and he's, he's the go-to guy on corporate governance. You know, I, 
I've interviewed him twice on the podcast and he's will be at the forefront of saying that, you know, it's really important to have an independent board, you know, it's family members and golf buddies. I mean, the end of the day, you want to keep management accountable, but where do you find that balance? You know, speaking to three board members here, where do you find that balance from visionary CEOs, you know, CEOs that might have that long-term vision that maybe years down the road, but maybe want to start taking the steps toward there, or even want to take a big leap. You know, how do you, how do you balance giving them the room to run with also steering them in the right direction? And anybody want to jump in? Yeah, that is a major challenge because especially for the independent directors, you have an advisory role, right? You do not have this operational role with the company. Whereas, uh, you know, Kevin, I don't know what you do in day-to-day life, but Scott, it sounds like you have an operational role with the private company you run and you, you have to be cognizant of how different that is to be an advisor versus an operator. And even if there's a suggestion of a line of business or a divestiture or some sort of reorganization of the company uh, or to expand a business line that might be more successful, it might make all the sense in the world on paper, but you have to remember that there is, you have to have buy-in from the decision makers, not only the CEO and senior management, also the lower level employees who have to implement that. So you have to be very savvy in the way that you provide feedback uh, to whether even if it's a chairman, other directors, or if a senior management or the insiders on the board, and then how that trickles down to implementation issues for lower level employees. It's a fine line to, uh, to, to walk, I think, and it does take a certain personality and quite a bit of trust that you have to build up with the other directors and senior management of the company. I think that's well said, Stephen. Um, it is a fine line. You mentioned that early on, fine line. And I, I, I always put myself on the fence and sit down and say, don't fall on the other side. Just don't fall on the side that you kind of can manage and control. But let me, let me offer up a couple of different things. Uh, you, talking, talking about uh, um, visionaries and things of that nature in, in long-term planning. Um, as an advisor, I advise scenario planning. Um, if you want to do something, let's, let's pre-plan. Let's not react. Let's pre-plan so that we actually are in control of our own destiny. And yet we may have two or three different scenarios in which we will execute if this happens or if that happens or things of that type. So that we're always running some kind of, you can, I mean, we always talk about five-year rolling plans and all this stuff. But again, you, some fashion that you can go in and look at, at how, how will we respond to X, Y, and Z. I mean, very, very difficult to say how we respond to COVID because that wouldn't have been something that we would have had, you know, sense for. I mean, it's existential. And those are the things that are black swans in some, in some cases. So I think that there's, I think there's quite a bit of, of, um, of opportunity to, from an operational perspective, assist people in the strategic implementation, not the, not the day-to-day execution. Um, the other thing that's interesting from a, from a, if you want to look at the day-to-day execution, again, it's not, it's not trying to do the work for people, but one of the things that we've had a lot, a lot of conversations about, and this is something that you've probably seen quite a bit about, is, is OKRs, objective and key results. These are the cascade down. So that when you have a strategic plan sitting at the top of a company and you have a CEO sitting on that, everything cascades down from that so that when if, if you said it, you know, what do you, what do you have each individual do? Well, each individual from the standpoint of execution is now tasked to do something that is contributing and related to the strategic plan. So again, some of that 
is kind of operational, but it's oversight of operation rather than nitty gritty stuff telling this guy to do that, or that guy to do that. So again, there's a, there's a few things in there that I think are uh, management, management related protocols uh, that I think can be affected um, to aid in this, aid in execution, aid in strategy. But again, you're on that fine line. You don't want to be in there and duking it out with the, with the CEO because, quote unquote, you know better or I know better. I think that's when you start to get into some serious trouble. I think that's an excellent point. That strategic plan that's, a, that's approved by the board, then the board has this responsibility and has to have the discipline to enforce whether management is sticking to that, how they're, how they're implementing that strategic plan and, and to you know, kind of keep an eye on them, even intra-quarter, to make sure that they're not deviating from the protocols in that plan. If the plan needs to be adjusted in some way, then that the board needs to be involved in that. And, you know, again, sometimes there's difficult conversations that have to be made. And to Scott's point, you do have to build that trust with the senior management, or, and that might be the chairman and CEO as well. It might be the same person in some of these microcaps where, you know, this is kind of in many ways their company, so to speak. They founded it or they, they grew it quite a bit. And it, it is, uh, it's an important role to play uh, to make sure that whatever was presented, approved in terms of the next five years or whatever the case, not to get too communist about this, but on the strategic plan, however long it lasts, uh, that it is being implemented and management doesn't have the freedom to just go off on their own without consultation and, and review if something happens not to be working in the plan. Yeah, I'll bring, I'll bring a slightly different perspective uh, to this conversation. So the, the board I'm on is a sub 20 million market cap business. Kevin, I don't know what, what you guys are right now, but from, from that perspective, um, I mean, the CEO is, is purely a visionary, but you really learn how limited resources these companies have and how creative they ha all the employees have to become, the management has to become in order to you know, navigate without the resources of a, of a significantly larger company. So there could be visionaries that are part of management and you want that, but the visionaries are often having to be the operators uh, and it's very difficult to allow a visionary just to be a visionary because they need to make sure um, you know, something at an operational level is, is being handled. So what's impressed me the most, what's kind of uh, coming from an investor background to uh, a board of, uh, of director uh, seat is that from an investor perspective, you always, at least in microcaps, you sit back and you say, gosh, why isn't this happening with this company or what's taking so long or why, why aren't they refinancing their debt or blah, 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 blah. And then when you become part of these, these businesses, and you you're in the boardroom and you have these you understand the why i mean it's such a microcap businesses with such limited resources it is the companies that do ultimately do very well uh, like kevin's company and my company will end up doing um is it's remarkable and they all they deserve a uh, you know, in a war because it is very difficult as a small, 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 small business to be highly creative and navigate the, the things we have to navigate to, to become ultimately successful. There's a saying in the microcap world, everything takes more money and takes longer than you could ever, you know, want it to take. And it's, I mean, it's, Kevin, I'm sure you can relate to that. It is just so true. And as an investor looking at, looking at things from that 
perspective, it's very hard to understand from a board perspective. Um, uh, when you're on the board, you can understand more of the complexities behind a real living business as opposed to an investor just saying, why is this not happening? Why? So I say all that to say as, an, as a someone on a board now, um, I have a much better understanding of why those things are true because you see, you see what the challenges are. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating place to be in because you get, the CEO certainly gets a lot thrown at that individual uh, coming from all, all aspects. I mean, it's the whole thing from the, from the individual person in the, in the, in the, in the, in the bullpen who's pissed off at that particular time to a term sheet that they just received in the afternoon. That is a piece of crap. And <laughs> they're going to, they, they have to reply to it because it's, it's something that you do. You try to be nice. Um, so there's a lot that goes from soup to nuts. I mean, you, and you can see the variation daily. Day. I mean, I actually was, when I was in board, uh, board positions, I, I would go to the office for a day or two and just hang, hang out and see what's going on. You can actually visit and see what's going on from the day-to-day -day activities. And that's another thing that you don't see in bigger and bigger companies. You never see what's going on down in the, down in the bullpens, for example, that you get a sense for. Um, what is actually happening and whether there's, you know, a momentum in the business. Things that, these are the things that you can actually get a sense for while you're, while you're in the, uh, the two or three days that you're there. So that's always been kind of fun from a standpoint also. Um, the other aspects, and I'm, I'm absolutely on top of, not on top of, I'm absolutely um, a, a proponent of or a, or a servant of Adam Epstein as well. I think Adam is a is a great resource. And just for everybody there, um, um, he, he uh, together, together with David Shear, have set up uh, the uh, uh, Small Cap Institute uh, and making it available to members of the board of directors and other CEOs so that they can have conversations of this type, uh, highly valuable in my opinion. And I recommend it to uh, to those who are listening, as well as members of this panel, to uh, take a look at it, uh, to see it. Because again, it, it reflects an awful lot of Adam Epstein's vision. Um, he, he, is, he, is a, he is a very, very well-spoken and well-written uh, fellow. Uh, and I think that that would be very valuable for most people who are, who are interested in how board of directors might want to work or how they should be working. Absolutely. Oh, sorry, Steve. No, I was going to, you know, go excellent, excellent um, suggestion, Kevin. And going back to Scott's point about some of the challenges in these sub $20 million companies, you know, I didn't realize until I got involved with the company that I am that, look, it, for us to borrow money, uh, we'd need a personal guarantee, you know, and there are some personal guarantees that we have for different types of loans that we have. I mean, we have some real estates, for example, that has uh, some some mortgages on them and they required a personal guarantee. I would have never thought that as a, as a public company, but in some cases there's just not access to these more sophisticated lenders on the one hand, or on the other hand, the finances or the, the arrangement is just uh, not, not acceptable in order to get, even if it's funding that is low risk to the bank. And, you know, so that that's something that we don't always think about these personal guarantees, the fact that, you know, in, in many cases, look, I have, I, I, I for example, am a, a personal guarantor to a line of credit to uh, 
you know, that the public company has. And I would have never thought that would have been the case before I got involved in the company. And when you think about funding, especially in this environment, we talked about the PPP loans a few weeks ago. We can talk about those again later on if, if we want to. But when you talk about access to capital, even for growth opportunities and different funding, cost of funding, in many cases for these small companies, even when they're successful, it is a whole different world and a whole different challenge than it is for a mid cap or above. Let me throw in something else that's kind of an interesting observation. It was made clear to me uh, during this period of time is, and I think that the comment, I think the comment was as follows, that the CEO basically said, he says, I think I spent about 40% of my time dealing with things that are relative, uh, that are related to just being public, you know, uh, putting together filings, um, trying to find financing, uh, going over term sheets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it, 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 what I'm you right at the good part. I hit the mute button. Sorry. That was when he was going. <laughs> so when, when did I screw up? Right when you were about to tell us what the next great investment is going to be over the next yeah, yeah, yeah. talking about that. I cannot <laughs> read exactly what it was. I don't so. know what I was I was trying to get the point across that that the CEO <laughs> spent a, a ton of time uh, dealing with uh, uh, their, their 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 listings and managing them, dealing with the markets, dealing with the, the the different means of being able to get money. And when they when they really are, you know, what you really want them to do be doing is is executing, executing, and executing, but they haven't got the time to doing it. So I just was wondering whether or not you guys are feeling seeing the same thing and and uh, relating the same things to to others. Took the, took the question right out of my mouth. Steven, you want to jump in there? Yeah, no, I'm happy to uh, from the perspective because I have an operational role as well at the company, and I can tell you that you know, look, the the burden uh, the on the quarterly reporting the interactions with the auditors, the, you know, we have a, a uh, technical consulting uh, uh, consultant as well for some of the financials on some of the more complicated matters. And there is infrastructure that's necessary simply be, to be a public company in that way. And, uh, you know, it's a burden for sure. It takes up a lot of the CEO's time. It's kind of the primary role of the CFO, quite frankly. And, going through, you know, from a leadership perspective, whether it's the chairman or the CEO, or if they each have the same role, going through from a leadership perspective, understanding how they want to present, how you want to present the company, whether it's through the filings or through different presentations or what the image you want of the company to put out there is a very important thing. And it's, um, it ultimately lies on that CEO and the, the chairman's it's, it's their responsibility to do so. And then that trickles down to make sure that all the specifics underneath feed into that. And so just as an example, the image you're trying to get across, the, what you're trying to project that, that is what the company is, this goes down to two lines in an investor presentation on page 18 that needs to be reviewed very carefully. And so the leaders of that company, of these companies need to have both an overall kind of can see the forest perspective, but they also have need to have this attention to detail that is unique 
And to be able to combine those two skill sets and make sure that, uh, you know, again, all, all, of the, all of the language, all of the verb, you know, everything that's kind of going into the public material, even the website and things like that are reflecting uh, what the company is itself. You know, it takes a special skill set, but it also is time consuming because you're, you know, you're reading every one of these things, you're checking in the website, um, you know, you're holding people accountable, but ultimately that CEO, uh, you know, has to spend a significant amount of their time really on oversight, uh, no, matter, no matter how good the COO is, the CFO is as well, uh, that attention to detail is a major responsibility for the role. I have a couple of friends that uh, lead businesses that would be traditionally very prime for, uh, you know, IPOs and, and for the exact reason you guys talk about, well, first of all, we're in a great or have been in a great private equity type of environment for, for private businesses, but going public is the last thing they would ever want to do, even if potentially it's more attractive for them personally, just because of the, the burdens and headaches that come along with the, um, uh, all the expenses and filing, filing uh, rules and regulations. I mean, it is it, it truly is a burden, and and it's the difference for a lot of small companies between generating positive cash flows or burning cash. I mean, it's some lots of companies in the microcap space have to operate on that uh, thin line between a couple hundred thousand dollars here means you're losing money, a couple hundred thousands that, that you don't have to spend, and you're you're you can reinvest it wisely. So it's a it is a tough thing. When you think about the audits, the audits specifically, you know, just look, we're an SEC filing company. We're very small, but if we were not an SEC filing company, uh, that audit cost would be, gosh, who knows, you know, 70% lower. And there are certain pink sheet companies that are uh, not registered with the SEC, but voluntarily provide financials that simply an attorney letter is present, is, is required, which is, gosh, $100,000 cheaper than, <laughs> than what it would be. And, and again, like you say, that $100,000 can be the difference between a profit and loss in any given year. And not only that, uh, but you have to balance, right, with the outside investors. And this is kind of a role of the independent directors there, that how complicated is the business? Can you trust and should outside investors trust that attorney letter uh, or, or is an audit required, right? Because with that audit, it's not just that, it's a significant portion of the CFO's time and people underneath that CFO, and it's ex additional legal expenses from the outside lawyer and it's expenses uh, related to, uh, in our case, this outside financial expert um, consulting firm that we use as well. So, you know, you could look at our audit costs and I don't have it off the top of my head, but let's say it's 80 to $100,000. I mean, there's probably another $100,000 there of, of time and money spent to support that. And when you're a $7 million company, gosh, that's yeah, a big deal. I mean, how would you guys say, I mean, you guys have alluded to it already, but I mean, as, an, as also the three of you being investors, how has being a board member now changed your perspective as an investor? You know, when you, you've already talked about it at length, you know, where now you see how the CEO gets dragged in so many different directions, you know, what, what, how, how has your perspective changed now as an investor? My, my, my pr perspective has become much more skeptical, I guess. I've always been a skeptic, but it's become <laughs> much more, ref, ref, I've become much more refined 
and what the refined, refined, refined. I'm a refined, I'm a refined old prick, good old prick. Imagine what it was before he was a director. Yeah, you know, but the but the thing about it is, is that you're much more in tune with uh, some of these things, and what you also find out, and I think it was, it, it wasn't specifically mentioned earlier, but what it comes down to is, is that some of the, the questions or concerns that uh, that investors have are ridiculous. I mean, they're absurd, you know, when you get down to it. Some guy, some guy's daughter is going to go to college, so he sells off some stock. Oh, my God, an insider's sale. Holy, the company's going to go down the shitter, okay? Down, okay? So you sit there and you go, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy, the poor guy, he doesn't, he's a, he doesn't have a lot of money, okay? His daughter's going to college. He needs the money, okay? Where else is he going to get it? So there are things like this, simple stuff that people get really anxious about as an investor that as a, as a board member, you, you just shake your head and say, no, that's not even, what, that's not even close, man. So there's a lot of uh, misinterpretations that go on. I, I love the whole thing about, well, why, why does the sales cycle take so long? Well, because it takes so long, geez, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it does, and I'm telling you, it does. You know, you think it's gonna happen in three months? You know, come on, give everybody a chance, you know? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that investors um, consider as being inappropriate for, for, uh, um, for company execution, when in fact, you know, you're living on a day-to-day -day basis and you're scratching your head, why this stupid company or why this stupid individual in this company is sitting on the contract for six weeks there's, there's, there's this, these, there are these things that happen that, that I wish everybody had the opportunity to, to, to uh, look under the vest and see, see that this is what really goes on. You know, I laugh so, so, I've laughed so hard because I've definitely asked that on camera to a few CEOs. Like, why yeah. does the, why why the sales cycle? So <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it does. You know, you're dealing with, you're, you're dealing with like, <laughs> your mokes and malukes, right? There's a, there's, there's an investor in our business and I don't care. It's so predictable that I'm going to get a, a message from him whenever our stock is down. I don't care if it's down 2% or 10%. What's going on? You know, are things okay? Like, come on, man. I mean, it's, it's, this is, we don't control our stock. We're just executing on the business. If it's, yeah, yeah. but every, it's, it's to your point, Kevin, it's like, but it makes, it makes me think, back to my early days as an investor, what a bonehead I probably was because I was doing the same thing. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's really helpful to see the other side of it from the board seat because you do realize we're all humans. I mean, we'll sell stock if we have to sell stock. It's not that we don't believe in the company. I mean, it's one thing if you liquidate your position, but if you, if you have to sell $5,000 to help with something, like we're all humans, we gotta, we gotta take care of our finances. So I think, you know, the, the, Whenever I see people talking about insider, I mean, obviously buying is another story and that's always bullish, but um, selling can be for oh, how many it? reasons? A million reasons. <laughs> that's a whole nother rabbit hole right there. Yeah, that's another <laughs> rabbit hole we could go down. I think for us, when we, you know, we look at it in a way that we're not trying to manipulate anything, then yes, right. it's bullish, but uh, let's not project our own ethics onto others. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, for me, I'm much more humble as an investor in other micro caps because you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes in the near term. 
And there could be great things happening. There could be really major negative things happening. And until oftentimes the news doesn't come out until the quarterly results, you know? And so you're stuck there for three months, just kind of waiting and sometimes longer. Um, and sometimes of course there's negative financial results, but it's because of significant reinvestment in the opportunity that will be long-term positive for the company. And, you know, when you're talking about a, a, a smaller balance sheet and micro cap companies, like we are, you know, a major investment that could turn into a major return over time an exponential return over time could decimate the stock price, for example, in the near term. And that's made me as an investor in other micro caps and small caps, it's really humbled me. It's, it's caused me to look much deeper into those companies, um, be much more qualitative than before, <laughs> than quantitative. Uh, and, you know, really be humble and, and understand the incentives that, and the alignment between the decision makers and the outside investors. So, you know, you'd love to see large insider ownership, uh, di different incentives related, there might be tax assets or something like that as well. And that's what you want to ride along with. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation where the, uh, the, the CEO or the board are just not as, not as aligned with you and maybe not as connected to the long-term value of the stock price. Who cares about the six month or one year or two year uh, aspect? You, you do want them focused on operations. Interestingly enough on that is one of the, one of the things that gets me a little bit riddled up is when management is consistently talking about the share price. You know, my attitude is stop talking about the share price and stop talking about the execution against the strategic plan. When you execute against the strategic plan and do it well, stay focused and all that stuff, the share price is going to follow you as, as well as it possibly can. If you worry about it all the time, you know, you're going you're gonna to only get yourself all in a, in a, in a tizzy. So I'm, I'm wondering if you guys have any advice to your management with regard to how they how they relate to their own share prices or what they should do about it or whether they should just keep their mouth shut and just put their nose to the grindstone. And, you know, what, what is it that you see is a, is a fair balance between keeping an eye on the share price, but not being fixated by it? Yeah, I think um, it is a balance. And I, I think obviously as a, as a public company um, CEO or CFO or part of a, a management team, you have to answer those questions from shareholders sometimes. And sometimes the best way to answer it is just say, we can't explain the share price. All we're doing to your point, Kevin, is, is focused on execution. And um, if the share price is, if you believe we're undervalued, buy our stock. If you don't, then sell our stock. Um, but to your, to your point, Stephen, like, you know, six months to a year, sometimes even too short term to think about for for microcap businesses and where stock could be, or uh, but if you're building towards long-term success and you build a shareholder base and get shareholders involved that understand that's the objective of the company, we're not looking at next quarter or the quarter after. We're doing things today that are going to impact what we report a year from now. Um, I think trying to build a shareholder base uh, and actively engaging with investors um, in microcap club, other places that can understand and believe in that, in that story and see the progress every quarter, but not care what the stock price is doing. I think that's where the focus needs to be. How do you surround yourself with, uh, and get shareholders into your company that are, are going to be there for the, for the long haul. And it's not easy to do at all. And you always have the, 
the jokesters and, and guys calling you up about share price daily. And you just, at some point you just got to say enough's enough. It's if you don't like what's going on, buy more or sell it. I mean, it's, it is yeah, what it is. Absolutely. I think that CEO talking about the share price is a major red flag, a major red flag, whether it's a small cap, micro cap or large cap. And, you know, we could talk about some of the red flags, quite frankly, of CEO, CEO kind of focus and compensation uh, and, and just, uh, you know, what, what it turns me off for some potential investments in, in small and micro cap companies. And the biggest one for me really is that fixation on that, because especially with these small companies where there's a potential for manipulation of the share price you know, it's just a dangerous thing to get involved in. It's a distraction for them, uh, for, for the good CEOs, it's a distraction for them to be asked, in, you know, in, in short amount, in short time periods from outside investors. So this is where you really have to give so much credit to Warren Buffett, early days of Berkshire, that he understood that in order for him to focus on results, you know, looking five, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, he could not be bothered with those day-to-day -day questions. And so the way that he arranged it was to, you know, have one meeting a year, answer questions as long as people wanted to ask them. And, you know, he was doing this, of course, 40 years ago, you know, 45 years ago. And then if anybody would ask questions of him about the company or about the share price or whatever the case may be in that interim time period, he or his staff would refer them to the annual meeting. And ultimately what happened is that led to an investor base that was more long-term focused, less fixated on share price in the near term. And it allowed him to, and, and the senior management team, and it's, it's a great symbol for everyone who's working below him that we're focused on multi-decade opportunities. Now, Buffett himself, of course, he's a unique person. And so he's, he's much less likely to be distracted by those types of conversations, but as the CEO, you have to set the tone for the entire company because most of those people at those positions that are lower level, they don't have that discipline. And you wanna make sure they're fixated and focused on the same thing. And that's the leadership and symbolism that's required from that role. Right. All right, I mean, I, if anybody else has anything to add, I feel like, you know, we I'll might let, be able to move. I'll add an, an, an ending comment. Um, it's kind of one of those things where it, it has to do with the aspects of emotions. And I, when I, I first started, when I first started my first company, um, uh, it became, became very, I became very clear and aware of the fact that nobody's ever going to pat me on the back. And also no one's ever going to tell me I'm doing a good job. Very typically. I'm always going to get, you know, well, this thing sucks, but bitch, 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 and bitch. Okay. So I think it's rather fascinating because on the board of directors, one of the things that I chose to do along the way is even though I'm a challenging type guy and put the CEO maybe in a little bit of a difficult position, when things go well, when things actually progress, when I think the CEO is actually doing a really good job, I'll actually go over to him and pat him on the back, okay? Um, I think that the emotional management um, of the management team is just as important from an outside perspective as, you know, direction or bitching and moaning and things of that type. So I would, I would argue that for board members that they should consistently be aware of the fact that uh, it's, all, it's, it's always good to praise as well as to 
you know, maybe not praise or whatever, but if you can praise somebody, uh, you might be able to get a, a, a bit more value from that particular conversation than you had in the past. Kevin, I agree with that because it is a, as we've kind of discussed here, it's a, it could be a lonely world for a management team of a, of a small micro cap company where it is such a struggle to get money you need or uh, other things, you know, close a sales deal, whatever it is, um, that I do think it, uh, that kind of respect can go a long way to, to helping um, keep them motivated, really. All right. I think that's a, I think that's a good bookend on, on this, on this conversation, but one more topic. And I think we could talk briefly about it because they're still trickling in, you know, um, we can start uh, this panel talk briefly. (laughs) Well, we're about to find out. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, we're starting to see quarterlies come in, you know, um, some actually have been better than expected, but I'll be at, low expectations i think we can all agree you know uh what does this mean right now moving forward i mean uh is this do you guys see this as a sign of uh better quarters ahead because things are starting to opening up or is this kind of what we're going to probably see consistently throughout 2020 i I, the going the going thing i've been hearing when i talk with ceos is that 2020 is just canceled and let's just you know look ahead a little bit but i mean what, what are you guys saying well, I think it's I think it's incredible what businesses and what products you see doing well in this new world and new environment and uh, businesses that were not at all sexy before are all of a sudden very sexy and um, so I, I I think that I think periods like this spur significant innovation like we've never seen before and I think every company is having to figure that out as they go and clearly the world is not coming to an end like everybody thought was gonna happen in March. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's no, the business is changing every day and, and you, there's tailwinds and headwinds and depending on what industry you're in, you know, you're on, you're on one side of the, the extreme. And if you're, if you're blessed enough to have tailwinds now because of this unfortunate virus, um, then you figure out a way to continue to get that, mo- you know, keep that momentum going even if things normalize. Um, but if you're now facing headwinds, uh, because of the environment, then you have to really kind of reinvent, reinvent yourself. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in terms of companies that, I mean, I'm curious y'all's thoughts, but what companies are reporting now, I personally, I don't take that much, at least the larger companies, I don't take that much, um, uh, you know, don't put that much stock, no pun intended, that much stock in, into what they're saying, because there are. PPP money or other things. There's so much stuff that's distorting numbers. And I think the phenomenon this year is going to be the, where the stock market is compared to where the, the reality is of where our economy is, is now or potentially even headed. Um, I think there's a, a bit of a, you know, quite a bit of a, a disconnect there. And uh, I don't know when or if that's going to become apparent, but um, I think companies are doing fine, but I don't think it's the, the green pastures that, that's being portrayed. Yeah, it depends on the industry because look at retail. I mean, they've been decimated. There have been a number of bankruptcies of companies that maybe accelerated that they were going to go bankrupt at some point, but now that accelerated to today. You've got a situation with kind of mall owners and it was Amazon going to take over JCPenney's stores and Sears stores for distribution centers and things like that. You've got really iconic brands like a Brooks Brothers or 
or other things like that that um, you know are are being taken over by other companies through the bankruptcy process. And you know it goes to show the ill effects of leverage and the need to roll over uh, the risk associated with having to look, roll over leverage in an industry and in a in a brand that uh, comes and goes with popularity. Yeah. And then, you know, look on the private side, the restaurants and challenges like that. It's, um, it's, it's a very, very tough world out there. Whereas, you know, to Scott's point, there, there are going to be winners and losers here. And the winner ultimately, I think, you know, fast forward 5, 10, 15, 20 years, look, take a long-term perspective. It's the innovation that comes from this. This is the creative destruction that it's a difficult time period, of course, but this is how we move forward with, with real major advancements over time. And, you know, this, this goes back to the beginning of, of time that, you know, the innovations, the medical innovations we got from World War I, for example, you know, terrible conflict, but there were, uh, there were medical innovations, World War I, World War II, Civil War, uh, things like that, and going back even further, that made society better you know, the next generation benefited from it. Now, the one thing I will say that we have to be extremely thankful for is that some of the activity that came from, uh, government activity that came from the 08, 09 financial crisis, uh, especially at the Fed uh, level, and you know, whatever your opinion might be with whether, I don't wanna to get too political here, but the fact that they had the freedom to do some things uh, in a very, very quick time period, especially related to the debt situation, um, has has really saved, I'd say, the economy and certainly saved the stock market for those of us who were involved in it or caused the V-shaped stock market reaction. Um, but it remains to be seen. I'm cautious for the, the foreseeable future. The Q2 results have been overall pretty decent for the companies I follow, better than I would have expected a couple months ago, three months ago. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not expecting, um, unless you're in an area that really can get a huge benefit from, from kind of work at home types of situations, you know, uh, I, I'm not expecting um, upside surprises uh, too much in small cap, micro cap land. Let me, let me just add a, add a, 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 a small note. I, I do reflect on what both Scott and Stephen have indicated, and I agree, and I, I the, this kind of summary statement that I have is that, uh, in my opinion, a crisis creates trauma as well as opportunity. I think that's, that was reflected by both individuals. And secondly, is that I'm not quite sure if I'm looking, if I, if I'm not quite sure if I want to look, you know, quarter to quarter to quarter, but I fully agree with uh, Stephen that if I look at a macro perspective, the innovation cycle that exists in this in the United States and across the world right now is still dominant as a macro driver for the economy. I mean, I don't see how it's gonna stop. And innovation, again, it does not stop because of interruptions. It actually sometimes goes even faster because the trauma that's been created provides the means or the opportunity or the time or the cash or whatever to actually implement these things that we've seen happen a number of different times in the past. So um, although we're looking at, although the question was about you know, this quarter or something that's short term, I don't reflect upon that as much. I reflect upon it as, as, uh, as trauma and opportunity and innovation cycle. But I think that just, again, reflects upon what Stephen and Scott have also indicated.
Yeah, my friend Jeremy Deal has a great perspective. I know he was on here a few weeks ago, and he's used this time period as an opportunity to find survivors and thrivers, right? So now's the time to look for quality companies that can take advantage of opportunities. Now's a time where we can see who the next great generation of capital allocators are at a company and operational level. And that's, that's exciting for us as observers and uh, potential investors, or, or at least, you know, companies that might be on the watch list to, to, to see which companies are going to kind of come from this and be the multi-bagger opportunities over the next decade. Could agree more with that one, with the survivors and thrivers. I like I like that phrase. Well, I Thank think you we're pretty much to Jeremy for that one. <laughs> hey, look, Jeremy's not here, so you take. No, I'm just kidding. No, but um, but uh, you know, I think I think that I think we're pretty good for this week. I mean, uh, let let's get some final thoughts and where everybody can go and follow you and get more information about uh, you and or your your company. So, uh, uh, Scott, let's start with you. Yeah, our company is called Whitmore, W-H-I-T-M-O-R, Whitmore.com. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about us. I'm on Twitter at Scott Felsenthal. And if you spell it right, you'll find me. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. That's a, that, that's a, I was going to say, that's a tease right there. You know, yes. so that you, you have to, now, now this is going to be a spelling bee after this. this right. gonna, I mean, I had enough problems spelling the good prick, but I mean, I think Felsenthal might be a little easier, easier <laughs> in that sense. Speaking of, of, of the good prick. Kevin, where can everybody go and follow you? Uh, generally nowhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Um, I don't have anything to sell. You know, uh, I, I did set up the old prick, but I mean the good prick, uh, probably also the old prick, but, uh, but uh, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it's nothing that I really care about. So I don't do anything. <laughs> I, I do, I do post, as you know, Bobby, I do post some pictures on uh, Facebook, but, it's my favorite. Uh, I like everyone. I hope it's a different username. It is. And so, do you know, so do, you, do, do you, any of you guys know about Dave's not here, man? Dave's not here. You know about that? Did you know about Dave's not here? Oh, that's classic. Okay. Yeah, you got to go see Cheech and Chong up in smoke. That was my last posting. <laughs> it's, a, it's a picture that I took about Dave's not here. On, on, it, was, it was actually on a barn in, in upstate New York. I took a picture of it and because I knew what it was. And then I, I only posted it recently because it's all about 40 years old and Cheech and Chong and Dave's not here. And one of the funniest, about a minute and a half skit that you'd ever want to see. So yeah, <laughs> I do that. Man, I, I feel really bad for not knowing that reference. I oh, did this too, the other day on Twitter. You know, I've seen Cheech and Chong movies. I just don't remember way, that skit. You're way too young, way too young. <laughs> all right, okay, I'm too young. And you're not oh, that, a stoner. That's you're not a stoner either, right? As far as you know. Uh, Stephen, where Stephen, where can people go and find more information about you and Bob? <laughs> this is a great example of to be a director as an advisor, you can have a lot more freedom than you might might be able to have as the CEO of the company <laughs> uh, themselves here. But love love you, Kevin. Uh, this has been fun today. I enjoy the conversation about the the board and directors. Uh, responsibilities and items and issues that we have to deal with with that. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, should be a popular thing for small microcap investors to watch. I hope they'll enjoy this episode. And I, I uh, would love to expand on this conversation in the future as well with each of you. Um, my uh, 
you can find me, I guess, um, at arquitos.com, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. That's my fund. And then willowoakfunds.com is the subsidiary of the public company that we do asset management related things there. It's uh, Willow Oak Asset Management, willowoakfunds.com. And and uh, I'm on Twitter and active as well, Stephen with a V dot, uh, Stephen underscore, not dot underscore, K-I-E-L. Uh, so uh, happy to interact with uh, people there and have enjoyed uh, today's discussion. Awesome. Well, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. I know I introduced myself as Robert. That's my, I do professionally. So if you get confused, I go by Bobby and Robert. So I figured I probably should just say that. But anyways, go follow me on Twitter. You can see every episode of the Investors Roundtable on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash S-N-N-Wire. I got a nice playlist with thumbnails and it's all, it's all nice and organized, I, I swear. And um, yeah, join us next week. You never know who's going to join and uh, what topics we're going to cover. So uh, thank you for listening and see you next week. Thanks, Rob. Thanks.